This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 38 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episode 37 for Part 1 of this two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Donald Hume was charged with the murder of Stanley Setti. However, once the evidence had been presented at the trial, jurors could not reach a verdict. Hume would subsequently admit his guilt on a charge of accessory to murder and was sentenced to 12 years, but only after a second jury were instructed to return a verdict of not guilty to the murder charge. The prosecution felt it was not in the interests of justice to proceed. Yet this is not where the story ends. Far from it. A series of articles were published in the Sunday pictorial following Donald Hume's confession. Hume had been remanded to Dartmoor Prison for the crime of being an accessory to murder, while the Seti family as well as the greater public were vying for answers as to why Stanley was killed, and more importantly, who killed him. In exchange for his legal fees to be paid, Hume had collaborated with the Sunday Pictorial for a series of autobiographical articles. He spoke more about his upbringing and explained that his mother was the root of all his misdeeds. Hume said, I hate her more than anyone else in the world. She made me an unloved bastard, sent off to an orphanage after the scandal of my birth. When I was about seven or eight, I was told that I had been adopted 
and was going to leave the orphanage. The woman I went to told me to call her aunt, and it wasn't until my stepsister and the villagers told me a year or so afterwards that I realised the truth. She was my natural mother. Hume detailed the shady businesses he ran, but denied ever being part of the car sales on Warren Street or killing Stanley Setti. While in prison, Donald Hume stayed under the radar, rarely getting into trouble. However, he often reached out to journalists to keep his name in the papers. He later recalled his time in Dartmoor and said he had been nicknamed The Fuse because of his, quote, mania for anything electrical. Hume claimed that the other prisoners were fond of him. He provided instructions to his fellow inmates on how to make radios from pieces of electrical equipment sent in to be disassembled by prisoners. Before Hume was granted the maximum reduction for good behaviour and had four years removed from his sentence, he had a going-away party at Dartmoor. He said that his inmates had even got him a huge ice cake with an image of a small plane with a bundle being dropped from it, and the words, A fuse will be blowing shortly. By the time Hume was released in 1958, he had no one to turn to. His wife Cynthia divorced him while he was locked up. She cited cruelty in her grounds for divorce, and it was granted. She was given full custody of their daughter, and Hume never saw his former wife or their child again. Cynthia later married Thomas Duncan Webb, the crime reporter for People newspaper who she had met during Hume's trial. Donald Hume's dog Tony, who he later claimed to love more than his wife or daughter, had been euthanised after his arrest. He was heartbroken. On the outside, with no way to make money, Hume first confirmed that he could not be retried for murder. Then he sensationally confessed to the killing of Stanley Setti in the Sunday Pictorial and the World in June 1958 for the sum of £2,000. In the articles, Hume detailed how and why he killed Stanley Setti on October 4, 1949. He spoke about how he met Stanley, saying... Sometime in December 1947, I wanted a cheap car for one of my staff, a bloke named Ken Porter. I was introduced to a car dealer who seemed to be a man of mystery. I caught my first glimpse of him standing outside a cafe in Warren Street, a drab street with a medley of shining second-hand cars of all makes parked in a line. This man was big-boned. 14 stone with dark eyes, swarthy, foreign-looking. I was told his name was Seti, and he had changed it from Sulman when he came back from Baghdad years ago. We haggled over a car. He had a voice like broken bottles and pockets stuffed with cash. I didn't know that two years later, I would be awaiting trial for his murder. Donald Hume said that after his business failed, he went back to London to become a, quote, super spiff. He approached Stanley Setti at the bar in the Hollywood Club and described him as a sinister bear-like figure, the unofficial banker of Warren Street. According to Hume, they began doing shady deals with one another. Hume allegedly stole cars that Stanley Setti could pass off as vehicles he had logbooks for. Hume claimed that he had been in Stanley's garage with his dog Tony on one occasion, and after the dog tried to get into one of the cars, Stanley had kicked the animal, incensing Hume. He said that he also heard rumours that Stanley was having an affair with his wife, 
and supposedly when Hume came home on October 4th, he found Stanley in his flat, sitting on his couch. Hume recounted how they began to argue. He took a German SS dagger from his collection on the landing wall and rushed towards Stanley with the weapon in his hands. His confession read in part, The handle of the dagger glinted in the light. I could see the initials SS. In the war they stood for Schutzstaffel, the elite army corps of Nazi Germany. Now those SS initials stood for Stanley Setti. Hume claimed that he intended to frighten Stanley with the dagger, but they ended up grappling on the floor, and Hume plunged the knife into Stanley's legs and chest repeatedly. Hume recounted that Stanley fought relentlessly despite the litany of stab wounds he had sustained, until Hume drove the blade into his victim's ribs and, quote, heard them crack. Stanley Setti writhed and rolled to a spot beneath the window, where he lay on his back and began to cough violently, as Hume stood over him and watched Stanley bleed to death. Hume looked into Stanley's glassy eyes and told him, The ball has stopped bouncing for you, chum. Hume said that his feeling of elation was quickly replaced with panic. He knew he had to cover up the crime. So Hume dragged Stanley's lifeless body across the floor to the kitchen, where he hid the body in a coal cupboard. He then began cleaning the living room, putting the furniture back where it was supposed to be, all the while grateful that the blood had not seeped through the plaster beneath the floorboards into his landlord's flat below. Hume described his mental state. He channeled the part of himself that he claimed had been fighting the world since he was a boy and began to get rid of the evidence. He polished the surfaces to get rid of fingerprints, cleaned the floor to get rid of the blood, and cut a strip of blood-stained felt from the carpet before stretching what remained, so it looked as it had before. He supposed the carpet was dirty enough already. The stains would not be identifiable as blood if he got it cleaned and dried. Hume then had to take the car key from Stanley's pocket to move his car. He wore gloves to avoid leaving any fingerprints. Hume decided that he would dispose of Stanley's body by dumping it into the sea from a hired plane, but realised he would never be able to carry the body out of the house himself at least not in one piece. He used a hacksaw and a sharp lino knife to dismember the body before packing the pieces into parcels, wrapping them in felt he had torn from the carpet. He placed rubble in the box that contained the victim's head to make sure it would sink, and when he was left with the torso, he felt a bulge in Stanley's coat pocket. It was then he discovered the money. Hume claimed that over £900 worth of notes were far too stained with blood, so he had no other option than to burn them. He had not noticed the consecutive serial numbers on the notes, which eventually led to his arrest, because they had been smeared with the victim's blood. Hume said that he cautiously drove the parcels containing the legs and head to Elstree Airport, where he had no problem hiring a plane. His lack of experience as a pilot meant he overestimated the journey the plane could take on a full tank at the speed it was travelling. So after Hume threw the packages out of the plane, he had to land in a hurry at Southend Airport. It was for this reason that he landed in the path of an oncoming plane, drawing enough attention to himself that those who witnessed the incident relayed the story to the police weeks later. He had to leave his dog Tony in Elstree overnight, but called the staff to ask them to let the dog out to run around before he came back the next morning. 
Hume said that after he had collected Tony, he returned to his flat and asked the man staining the floor to help him carry a parcel downstairs. He warned the labourer to hold the parcel by the rope, but neglected to tell him that was because blood was seeping through the wrapping. This time Hume took his dog in the plane with him, but there was chaos in the cockpit as the torso was lodged between the door and the controls. Hume had to hold Tony back to keep his dog from falling out, but suddenly the door opened and the package fell from the plane. Hume recalled watching in horror as the rope became slack and the outer wrapping came off as the bundle tumbled towards the sea. The torso, covered with just a single layer of material, was floating on the surface of the water below. He hoped it was far enough out at sea that it would eventually sink. After reading the headlines on October 23rd, he realised that his victim's body had, quote, followed him home. He explained that when the police eventually traced him through flight logs and the serial numbers on the £5 notes, Hume came up with a story about three men who had hired him to dump printing plates into the channel. Hume said he based the descriptions of the men on the investigators who were leading the inquiry. Mac was based on Superintendent McDougall. Greeny was based on Chief Inspector Jameson and the boy was based on Detective Sergeant Sutherland. Donald Hume ended the article by saying he was going to go abroad under a new name, and he did just that. Donald Hume could have been tried for perjury, but the Crown Prosecution Service knew all he had to do was say he lied in the article for monetary gain, so they did not pursue any further criminal proceedings against him. It was safe to presume that Hume was going to live quietly after his sensational confession. However, in November 1958, he was back in the media as a wanted man. On August 2nd of that year, a man had entered the Midland Bank on Boston Manor Road in Brentford, West London, armed with an automatic pistol. He had posed as a potential customer and came into the building just as the doors were locked in anticipation of the bank holiday weekend. Within seconds of announcing it was a stick-up, the armed man shot an employee behind the counter. The round pierced the man's stomach, and he immediately fell to the floor. Without hesitation, the gunman ran to the back and warned the other employees to do as he told them. After grabbing the contents of a lockbox and stuffing a canvas bag with cash, the robber pulled the telephone lines from the wall and ordered the staff to tie each other up. He demanded that they open the safe, but they told him it contained only books and no cash. The gunman picked up the spent casing from the floor of the bank before running out of the door and disappearing. It was initially reported that the gunman, who may have had an accomplice, escaped with around £5,000 in cash. A clerk, 32-year-old Frank Lewis, had been shot, but was in a stable condition. The bullet had lodged in his back, and a surgeon was quoted as saying, a fraction of an inch either way with the bullet, and he would have died. Scotland Yard appealed to the public for help tracing the gunman, who was said to have spoken with an Irish accent. One of the other members of staff, Derek Higgins, spoke of how the man had put the twenty-two caliber pistol to the side of his head and pulled the trigger, but it did not go off. It would be confirmed that the robber had only managed to steal £1,300 from the bank. Contrary to what the tellers had told him about the safe being empty, 
it had in fact been full of thousands of pounds in cash. On August 8th, Midland Bank offered a £1,000 reward for information leading to the suspect's arrest. A spokesman for the bank said, We want to make sure that everything possible is done to get this gunman. The detention of ruthless men like this one is necessary for the safety of everyone. Almost two months later, the robber returned to the Midland Bank at their new premises on the corner of Great West Road. At 3pm he rushed inside, brandishing two guns. However, due to his impatience showing the weapons too early, the clerk was able to sound the alarm before escaping under the counter. The gunman began grabbing what little cash he could, stuffing it into the hold all he was carrying, before he was rushed by another member of staff who knocked him to the ground. During the struggle, the gun went off, and the bullet hit the member of staff in the stomach. The robber fled from the scene before the police arrived. The bank manager Ernest Ares was rushed to the hospital and was believed to be in a critical condition. The reward for the gunman's arrest was increased to £5,000 as a result. A composite sketch was created based on the descriptions given by the witnesses in the bank and those people in nearby pubs, where it was believed the gunman had been drinking before he committed the crimes. The robber had only managed to take around £300 this time. He had been wearing a blue raincoat and brown shoes, items later discovered at Kew Bridge Station. A label on the raincoat led the police to a laundrette in Chelsea, where employees informed the police that it belonged to a man named Donald Brown. It was no coincidence that this was the same name that Donald Hume had assumed after he fled the UK earlier that year. Suddenly Hume was once again the most wanted man in Britain. People who had encountered the man who called himself Donald Brown said that he was a well-dressed pilot who spoke with an American accent. Interpol and Scotland Yard worked together to monitor the airfields and ports as officers made inquiries in Paris. But Donald Hume was in fact in Zurich, under a new name, Stephen John Bird. Bird had a new fiancé who believed every part of her partner's incredible life story. He was supposedly a Canadian pilot who moonlighted as a double agent for the CIA and the Soviets. Donald Hume had met Trudy Sommer in a nightclub in Zurich after he first arrived in Switzerland. Trudy and her sister had been sitting at the bar when she noticed him. Hume was staring directly at her. He had been with a friend a taxi driver who Trudy recognised. The sisters sat sipping their Benedictines when the waiter brought them both over a red rose. It was from Hume and his companion. Hume's friend approached Trudy and her sister and said, Don't be afraid. This is a real gentleman from Canada. This is his first visit to Switzerland and he said he wanted to know someone from this lovely country. From the nightclub, the foursome went to St. Goddard Hotel, where they ordered champagne and oysters. From then on, Hume and Trudy were inseparable. Trudy was a divorcee, and was stunned when he professed his love for her on the night they met. She was won over by his affection, he showered her with deliveries of red roses and candle-lit dinners. Trudy believed that Hume was a test pilot working with the Canadian forces. He often told her that he could not find women as lovely as her in Canada. On the third day after they met, Hume told Trudy he wanted to marry her. 
Trudy introduced Hume to her family, and she later said that they all thought of him as a kind, sympathetic man, just perfect for Trudy. Each time Donald Hume went to the UK to rob a bank, he told Trudy he was in Canada or the United States on business. When she would confront him after catching him in a lie, he simply voiced an even bigger lie and broke down crying. Before the British police could catch up with him, desperate for money to pay for his wedding, Donald Hume decided to commit another bank robbery this time in the city where he was living. Before midday on January 30th, 1959, Donald Hume entered the Gewerber Bank in Zurich with a cardboard box that contained an automatic pistol. He placed the box on the counter and immediately shot the clerk, 25-year-old Walter Schenkel. As Walter fell to the ground, he managed to sound the alarm. He vaulted over the bank counter and hit bank clerk Edwin Hugg with his pistol. Once again, Hume fled with just a small amount of money, leaving a huge amount of carnage in his wake. But this time, he would not get away. An employee from the bank chased him causing him to spill his bullets over the floor as he tried to load his gun. 16-year-old Ulrich Fitz kept up with Hume as he made his escape, but each time Fitz got close enough to grab him, Hume aimed the pistol at the bank worker. As they ran through the streets, the teenager called out to a taxi driver to stop the gunman. The man reached his arms out, but Hume shot the driver who fell to the ground. Frightened but determined, Ulrich Fitz kept chasing Hume. Eventually, another bystander called Gustav Angstmann was able to stop the fleeing gunman. Hume was out of bullets, and suddenly he was surrounded by a crowd of angry people who began to kick and beat him. The taxi driver Hume shot was pronounced dead in the street. 50-year-old Arthur Mag left behind a wife and two children. The police arrived and Donald Hume was taken to the holding cells before being questioned. Hume motioned with his fingers pretending to shoot himself, begging for the officers to execute him. Capital punishment did not exist in Switzerland, so despite his pleas for death, he was charged with murder attempted murder and armed robbery. The clerk Hume shot at the bank was recovering well in hospital. Just a year after Donald Hume walked out of Dartmoor Prison, he was behind bars once again. The Zurich police chief detective Hans Stotz told the Daily Herald that Hume had broken down on several occasions while being questioned and at one stage ate a cigarette he was handed. Detective Stotz also said to a reporter for the Express newspaper, We bring him to headquarters right here and it is not long before this tough guy is weeping. He stands in my office holding a finger to his temple and says, Puff, puff. Then he keeps on saying, Kill me. Shoot me. Give me the electric chair. Then he weeps again. He's a good actor. At first, Donald Hume told the Swiss police that his name was John Stanislaw, a 35-year-old Polish civilian who worked at the US Air Base in Wiesbaden. However, eventually, officers learned the truth. Meanwhile, a memorial of flowers and cards were placed in the gutter where Arthur Mag had bled to death. An autopsy performed by Dr. Hans Sogrist had shown that the cause of the victim's death was blood loss due to the bullet severing the main artery in the stomach. 
Donald Hume's fiancée Trudy was stunned to learn that her husband-to-be was not only responsible for robbing a bank in Zurich and killing a man, but he was also wanted for two bank robberies in London and another murder. While awaiting trial, Hume spent his time pining for Trudy and being interviewed by psychiatrists and the press. He agreed to pen another confessional series in exchange for money, but the funds would allegedly go to the victims of his crimes. In a series he wrote for the Sunday Pictorial along with Victor Sims, he mentioned his bank robberies and his relationship with Trudy. Trudy Sommer only ever knew Hume as Stephen John Bird, a Canadian test pilot. Hume delighted in the fact that a reward had been offered for his arrest three times, saying, I must be the only man in the annals of British crime who has had three prices on his head, £1,000 for the first bank rate and £4,000 for the second bank rate. The price offered for Hume's capture was more than he had managed to steal from any of his crimes. His only regret was what he had put Trudy through, saying, I wept at the thought of the lovely girl whose life I had ruined. Hume ended his series of articles by writing, Perhaps, though, it is just as well our love affair ended when it did. Trudy always made me soft and sentimental, and I don't want to be soft. Remember, I'm the enigmatic guy who raided the same bank twice. And believe me, there's still a lot of the old Donald Hume left. The Swiss, German and British police tried to work out how Hume had managed to get in and out of the UK so easily. Detectives believed he may have utilised a particular escape route used by organised criminals conducting human trafficking operations. Scotland Yard had established that Hume had gone to Ireland immediately after the first robbery in Brentford. They believed there was a safe house there. Swiss and German detectives theorised Hume used the same escape routes as jailbreakers Alfred Hines and Dennis Stafford, who had both managed to flee prisons on the continent. It was theorised that criminals were using American air bases in Britain and Germany and bribed servicemen to smuggle them onto Air Force planes. Hume was known for posing as an American. Detectives also began questioning whether Hume had killed the men he had so easily assumed the identities of. John Stanislaw and Stephen John Bird. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Donald Hume's Swiss trial began on September 24th, 1959 in the city of Winterthur. British journalists flew over to report back to the public who consumed every morsel of information about Hume they could get their hands on. The prosecutor, Dr Paul Hart, listed the charges against the accused. Murder, attempted murder, armed robbery, endangering human life, and breaking immigration laws. Under Swiss court procedure, trials opened with a detailed examination of the defendant's background. Hume was more than happy to comply. He picked his teeth with a matchstick as he brazenly admitted to the robberies in Brentford, the murder of Stanley Setti, and the Zurich High Stand murder of Arthur Mack. Hume showed no respect for the judge, Dr. Hans Gutt and referred to him as the old guy or buster. He laughed as he detailed how he had fooled British police and the jury into convicting him of accessory to murder. He relished the spotlight once again, chained and accompanied by armed guards. He would wink at reporters in the gallery. Hume caused a scandal when he claimed Stanley Setti had fathered the child he raised with his then-wife Cynthia, a claim which she refuted in the media. Hume even alleged that he had found Cynthia and Stanley in bed together shortly before the murder. Furthermore, an espionage angle would emerge when Hume claimed on the witness stand that he had worked as a spy for the Soviets. According to Hume, he had taken pictures of Loring Air Force Base in Maine and then handed them over to agents in East Germany. He then went on to allege he passed an FBI security examination when applying for a job as an electrician in Canada, although there is no record of Hume ever applying or working there. After detailing his past offences... Donald Hume went on to matter-of-factly speak about the murder of Arthur Mack. Hume described how he saw Arthur running towards him, calmly telling the courtroom, I shot him. He fell over. He moved and I just took a snapshot at him. It was purely instinctive. The defendant said that the only reason he had returned to the Midland Bank in Brentford was to get revenge on the clerks who lied to him and told him the safe was empty. Hume bragged that he was such a good shot he could have easily struck and killed Walter Schenkel and Edwin Hug, the two bank employees. Speaking about the shooting of Schenkel, Hume ominously said, If I were going to liquidate him... I would have blasted him in the head. When a report written by Scotland Yard was read to the court, Hume declared it was, quote, prepared by some son-of-a-bitch inspector who wants to blacken my name. Donald Hume's behaviour in court was beyond bizarre. 
between getting up to sit with the jury and cracking jokes. He had even helped the judge to hold up a blueprint of the bank he had robbed. There had been some debate about who the reward money offered by the British Midland Bank should go to. Arthur Mag's daughter believed her family should get it. But Gustav Anxman, who tackled Hume to the floor, said he was the one who stopped Hume. Surprisingly, Donald Hume offered his opinion and believed that the young clerk who had chased him through the street should get the money, saying, This young guy followed me all the way. The others only joined in afterwards. When teenager Ulrich Fitz had testified, Hume winked at him and told the court, Let me make this absolutely clear. The only man who really chased me was this lad. Hume said that Gustav Anxman had only caught him as he was exhausted after being chased by Ulrich Fitz. Donald Hume confessed that he had robbed the bank because he had run out of money. He had previously gone to a church, certain that the robbery would fail, but went through with it anyway because he did not want to see himself as a coward. He had picked up a cardboard box while in the church and used it to conceal his gun in the robbery. He placed it on the counter in the bank, pulling the trigger of the hidden weapon without thinking. He said that Trudy was already beginning to suspect he was lying and he had contemplated suicide. Before the trial, Dr. Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig had compiled a 15,000-word report on the defendant. He concluded that Donald Hume was a psychopath and of sound mind when he committed the crimes. Dr. Guggenbuehl Craig even suggested that Hume was never in love with Trudy. He was simply playing a role, much like he did in other aspects of his life. In fact, while Hume was awaiting trial, Trudy had come to visit him. He welcomed his fiancée by hurling insults at her. Trudy had been looking forward to seeing Hume as she ran towards him, but he stepped backwards and put his hands up to stop her, exclaiming, Get out of here. I know why you've come. You are not interested in me. You just want the publicity. Hume had told Trudy he did not want to see her, but eventually calmed down. He asked a guard for a typewriter and wrote out consent for his story to be used in a film, a film which he wanted Trudy to star in. The only time Donald Hume showed any respect for the judge was when it was announced it would not be necessary to call Trudy Sommer as a witness. Hume was grateful. During Dr. Guggenbuehl Craig's examination of Hume, the expert witness concluded that the defendant was incapable of ordinary human feelings and found pleasure in acts of violence or sexual excess. The doctor testified, When he began to tell me about his fight with Seti, his face had such a savage expression that cold shivers ran down my spine speaking about what he described as Hume's psychopathic character. Dr. Guggenbuehl Craig said he could not determine whether this was somehow linked to Hume's meningitis diagnosis in 1941. Hume insisted he was sane, and his child had had no role to play in the crimes he had committed, saying, I want to emphasise this. I don't think anything has happened to me in the past which has had any effect on me. I wish the jury to know that when I performed any form of violence in England, I did it with determination. But this business in Switzerland was against my nature. He claimed his crimes in Zurich were out of desperation. Detective Hans Stott said it was difficult to disentangle facts from fiction in statements Hume gave. 
The Swiss police had been on a wild goose chase as Hume led them to believe he had buried money in a field somewhere and went with them as they excavated numerous plots of land. The prosecutor slammed the British justice system and asked what sort of farce it was to let Hume go free after he confessed to Stanley Setty's murder following his release from prison. Dr. Leonhardt said it was a failing in English law that Hume could be paid for his confession and use the money to flee the country. The prosecutor told the court, It taught him that crime does pay, first by deceiving an English court and afterwards becoming the hero of a series of crime articles with lots of money coming to him from them. Donald Hume didn't allow his court-appointed counsel to say much in his defence and readily accepted whatever sentence he was to receive. After a five-day trial, Donald Hume was found guilty. It was no surprise considering the fact that he had admitted to the charges throughout the legal proceedings. The prosecution would fight for a life term, which was the maximum sentence in Switzerland. The judge would agree, and Donald Hume was sentenced to a life term in prison. As the verdict was read aloud, Hume laughed before stating, I am satisfied with the way the trial went. I knew it was bound to end this way. I got what was coming. As he exited the court, he bounded down the stairs, leaping three at a time, manically laughing and dragging his guards behind him. Hume was thrown in the prison van on his way to Regensdorf Jail. Regensdorf was reported to be one of the strictest prisons in Europe. Hume had his head shaved before being brought to his cell, where he would be forced to sit in silence for three months. The show he had put on in the courtroom failed to land him in a psychiatric hospital, and he spent the next 16 years in a Swiss prison. The reward money for Donald Hume's arrest would ultimately be split among several people who had assisted in his capture. £6,000 was split. Rick Fitz received the most at £1,150. The family of Arthur Mag received £986. Gustav Anxman received £822. Walter Schenkel received £822. Edwin Hug received the same. And there were five other people who received between £83 and £575. Following her divorce from Hume, Cynthia had married Duncan Webb the lead crime reporter for the People newspaper, but Webb had tragically died just a year into their marriage. Despite being rid of her ex-husband for almost a decade, Cynthia had been humiliated when Hume said that she'd had an affair with Stanley Setti and that the twins she had carried were his. This salacious claim was reported in the Times newspaper and in May 1960, Cynthia began a civil case against them. Cynthia's claim argued that the article contained information that was defamatory and libelous. Legal representatives for the Times claimed that it was a fair and accurate report of the judicial proceedings in the Swiss courtroom. Cynthia had also taken legal action against the Sunday pictorial when they insinuated she had committed perjury. 
It was stated that she had previously met Stanley Setti despite Cynthia testifying in court that she had not. The Sunday pictorial would agree to pay damages. When this case was settled, Cynthia had hoped she and her daughter would be left in peace. But Hume was asked about his life at the Swiss trial, and he said, The child was not mine. The father was Stanley Setti. Cynthia's solicitor sent a letter to all media outlets to assure them that that statement was untrue, but the Times published it anyway. A judge would ultimately rule in the Times' favour. Life in Regensdorf Prison was extremely difficult for Donald Hume. He was one of the only English-speaking prisoners there. He allegedly tried to abscond on several occasions and spent most of his time alone under heavy guard. In March 1960, an escape attempt was foiled when his cellmate informed the prison guards that Hume planned to beat his way out using the iron leg of his bunk. On numerous occasions, applications were filed requesting he could be transferred back to Britain, where other prisoners spoke the same language as him, but Hume's requests were refused. In June 1965, Hume asked his lawyer, Dr. Dethan von Reckenberg, to contact Sir Franz Soskis, the Home Secretary, to plead for a transfer to a British jail, quoting the case of Brian Cowell. Cowell had been jailed for life in West Germany in 1959 for the murder of a policeman in a bank robbery, but he was deemed to be mentally unwell in jail and was eventually deported and transferred to Broadmoor. Now known as Prisoner 23 instead of his other aliases, Donald Hume had been trying for six years to return to Britain. He had refused to be interviewed by psychiatrists until an American doctor arrived. Their report painted a picture of a broken man. The prison staff knew him as the crazy birdman artist, who, when not in solitary, would save his bread rations for the birds. Even Father Marcos Pereira, who visited Hume regularly and brought him food, was met with abuse when Hume told him that he did not want to see anyone. Hume did, however, make the acquaintance of a 23-year-old English trapeze artist, Anne Riley, when she visited Zurich with the circus. Describing how they met, Anne Riley later said in an interview with The Express, After the show, the governor, realising I was English, said he had a British prisoner and asked if I would visit him. I said of course I would help, and I was taken up to a cell on the third landing. There a pleasant, quiet-spoken man stepped forward and said, Good afternoon, madam. You have heard of me, I am sure. I am Donald Hume. My heart leapt. I knew Hume had a terrible reputation for cutting people up in bits. Hume had become an avid painter and shared his life story and paintings with the trapeze artist when she would visit. She said at the time, He counts the life of an animal higher than the life of a human. What upset him most when he was arrested was that they did away with his dog because they could find no one to look after it. I think he is crazy, but he fascinates me. I have no sympathy for what he has done, but I feel he is paying for it now. And if it is possible to help him a little, then there is no harm in that. When I visit him, we talk with a warder at my elbow and another at his. He just talks and talks. He blames his bitterness on the fact he was illegitimate, that his mother tried to hide him and push him out of the way with the result that he grew up hating the human race and loving only animals. He boasts of the fact that he has done 107 days solitary confinement 
a record he says, and earned for kicking out at the warders. There were paintings all around the walls, and he asked me to order materials from a firm of London art suppliers. I did, and they sent him out a catalogue. Now, if he lets me have some more of his work, I would like to try to organise an exhibition in London. I always write from the circus. If he ever came out of jail, I should be terrified if I thought he could find me, so everyone has strict instructions that my whereabouts are never to be revealed. For me, if Donald is ever freed, I am sure he will regard me as perhaps his only friend in the world. It is believed that Donald Hume eventually became institutionalised. His mental instability only worsened as a result of the conditions while in Switzerland. He spent most of his time in solitary confinement. Three guards were on duty at all times outside his eight-foot by ten-foot cell. He required four guards to escort him for a bath. Wiegensdorf social worker Monique Fischer said at the time, he's a very difficult man, very violent still. It has been forbidden for anyone to visit him alone. Normally the Swiss do not detain prisoners beyond a decade and a half, but during his time in Regensdorf prison, Hume became increasingly violent and was finally treated as insane. As the limit drew near, Hume tried to get deported but failed. Diplomatic talks between Britain and Switzerland eventually produced an agreement that Hume would not be given his freedom. A British psychiatrist was sent to Switzerland to examine Hume, and it was decided he would be returned to the UK. Under the recommendation of doctors, Hume was sent for detention and treatment under Section 26 of the Mental Health Act, which covers the interest of the persons concerned or the safety of others. In August 1976, Donald Hume arrived on British soil in chains. He was greeted by a Scotland Yard detective at Heathrow Airport. Hume smiled and danced for the cameras, before saying, Look what they have done to me. They even made me shave my hair. But I taught them all I know Switzerland, and they learned a lot from me. Psychiatrists and staff from nearby Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital were waiting inside the terminal building. Within two hours of touching down, Hume was locked up, once again. Records viewed at the National Archives document his committal to Broadmoor upon his return to Britain. Under the 1959 Mental Health Act, Hume was examined and detained for what was supposed to be a single-year period, with further detainment dependent on subsequent medical examinations. When Hume was committed in 1976... There were fears that having a criminal like him in Broadmoor would tar the patients at what was now a secure psychiatric hospital with the same brush. Broadmoor was opened in the late 1800s as the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. The facility would house many notorious criminals, such as Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper, Ronnie Cray, Charles Bronson and John Straffan. According to the West London NHS website, Broadmoor is a, quote, specialist psychiatric hospital which provides assessment, treatment and care in conditions of high security for men aged 18 and above from London and the south of England. It's one of three high-secure psychiatric hospitals in England and Wales and treats people with mental illness and personality disorders who represent a high degree of harm to themselves or others. Broadmoor is internationally renowned for its highly specialised care and research work. 
Broadmoor houses up to 210 men over the age of 18 who are diagnosed with a mental disorder. The average stay for patients at the hospital is five and a half years, but this depends on the patient's recovery and rehabilitation. Once a patient is deemed to pose a reduced risk, they are moved to lower security hospitals, or if they have been admitted by the courts or prison service, they are transferred back to the criminal justice system. Donald Hume seemed to like living in Broadmoor. When members of the European Commission of Human Rights visited the hospital in 1978 following complaints of overcrowding, Hume was more than willing to praise his new home. He said, It is Regensdorf you should be looking at. I am enjoying my life in Broadmoor. The people know what they are doing. It is a very well-run place. During his time at Broadmoor, Hume worked in the kitchen washing dishes. Jobs in facilities like Broadmoor or prisons are a privilege to those who are considered to be model patients or inmates. Those who then encountered Donald Hume said he came across as cheerful, with one person even likening him to a friendly uncle. Hume was kept at the facility until 1988, when it was deemed he was safe to be transferred to St. Bernard's Hospital in Middlesex. He fell into obscurity. By this stage, it was too late to try him for the armed robberies and shootings he committed in Brentford in 1959. He was eventually released when he was deemed to no longer pose a threat to the public, and his death barely made the news in 1998. In July of that year, the body of an elderly man was found on the grounds of the Copper Beaches Hotel in Basingstoke, Hampshire. The police were initially unable to identify his remains, so the body stayed in the mortuary for over a week before fingerprints were taken and they matched Donald Hume's records at Broadmoor. So where are we now? Donald Hume was almost able to commit the perfect crime when he got rid of Stanley Setti's remains from a rented aircraft by throwing them into the sea. Hume did not account for the tide that eventually brought Stanley's torso into the marshes or the determination of the authorities when they utilised every resource to find the killer. By the time the police caught up with Hume, three weeks had passed, allowing him to get rid of most of the evidence, so the case was purely circumstantial. Donald Hume confessed to a murder but was able to get away with it because of the double jeopardy law. This law was finally changed following a relentless campaign by Anne Ming, the mother of Julie Hogg, whose murderer had confessed numerous times following an acquittal. Anne Ming and other people who had been impacted by violent crime managed to get the 800-year-old law changed so that a person could be retried for a serious crime if new evidence emerged. If this change had been in effect in 1958, Arthur Mag might have lived, and three bank clerks would not have been shot by a man who played many roles. But in the words of Dr. Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig, who interviewed Donald Hume at length, he is only really and truly himself in the part of the criminal. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website 
they walk among us podcast.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.